comes before Nahum and the books of Habakkuk. If you are joining us this morning for the first time, welcome on behalf of Summit Church. Glad to have you here today. My name is uh, Pastor Michael Dascoli. I'm the senior pastor of, of this church. I have that privilege of serving in that capacity, but that's just a small part of what this body is and what that body is about. So it's a privilege for me to be able to teach. And God has led us on a journey where we are just walking through the scriptures one book at a time as God leads us. So we've been doing a series on the minor prophets, kind of the lost parts of your, of your Bible. But I am gearing up now to start a new series. The book of Ephesians will be beginning that as God allows the last Sunday in August. So be praying as we prepare for that. But as we study the minor prophets, this is how we come to Micah. And, and Micah, you know, uh, throughout my life, uh, people have been intrigued by this whole idea that that Descoli is Italian and that I'm Italian, you know? And, and they, they always seem to, to love to play on that name and try to sound kind of like a, a Bronx Italian or something. Hey, Descoli, what's the no going on, huh? <laughs> and uh, after I became a believer, I was in a few Bible studies. I remember sometimes as a young believer that we'd get into the book of Micah or refer to, to Micah, and someone would pick up on that and say, Micah, you Italian or what? <laughs> so I think about those things when I think about the book of Micah. Well, it's interesting that uh, Micah and Michael are truly the same name uh, with the same meaning. We don't know a whole lot about this prophet Micah, just a little bit, but we definitely know the meaning of his name, and his name comes to us in the form of a rhetorical question, and that rhetorical question would be, uh, who is like God? And of course, the uh, obvious answer there is, is no one is like God. And we find this, if you want to turn, if you're there in Micah, turn to chapter 7. I'm fascinated how many times I begin a book, a new study, a, a, a book like Micah, and then I end up starting at the end. <laughs> I don't know if you observe that. It'd be interesting to track that and see how that all plays out. But in Micah chapter 7, verse 18, it appears that Micah seals this book with his own signature. Look at the question he asked there. Who is a God like you? See that? And of course, the answer is there's no God like you. And then he goes into this description of who he is that actually becomes a prayer for us as to how we can pray for Israel, the nation of Israel, specifics to that end and the future hope of Israel. But also, it gives us a picture of the character and nature of God, which gives us hope in our spiritual journey. So he asks that, that rhetorical question, who is a God like you? And then look what he says. He says, who pardons sin, who forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You, God, do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and heal our iniquities, or hurl, excuse me, hurl our, all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be true to Jacob and show mercy to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our fathers in days long ago. So when I give you a verse, like when we were praying a moment ago, like uh, Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's an oath from God that not only does he start a work, but he'll continue it. And so here we see it as the future hope of Israel. And this is important because frankly, God in our world often gets a bad rap. 
And I have to say, some of that is brought on, has been brought on, by those who claim to know God, yet misrepresent Him by making God something that He's not. But ultimately, we need to recognize, and I don't say this to give us the EBGBs or cause us to look for a demon behind every bush, but the reality is there are powers and principalities that are working in opposition to the things of God that want to send a contradicting message about who God is and what God does. Jesus uh, was once talking to the religious leaders, these hypocrites, these uh, leaders who claimed to know God, but really were as far from him as, as you can imagine. And he's, and he's telling them that they're actually children of the devil, and then he gives us this definition of who Satan is. And look at this definition. This is John 8, verse 44, partway through the verse. Jesus says, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. See this? See what we're talking about here? You say, how is Satan a murderer from the beginning? Well, if you understand death in kingdom sense, death is separation from God. And so his goal in the garden, our first image here, was to separate Adam and Eve from their heavenly father who loved them, who loved, uh, who loved them. And, and if you understand the context of this, the way that he worked the separation out was to give them false principles of who God is. So these lies that Satan speaks are rooted in a strategy to deceive people in having incorrect images of who God is so that they literally think light is dark, truth is a lie, uh, good is bad and bad is good and and somehow god does not have our best interest in, in mind uh, john eight forty four becomes this illustration for us because if you understand that verse in context as well jesus is performing miracles and he's teaching wonderful things and yet the religious leaders are accusing him of operating out of a spirit of beelzebub and so what you see happening here is a twisting of what's going on. Jesus is here representing a loving father, but these guys are trying to twist it around and make it sound like he's representing the dark side somehow. So Satan's had thousands of years to master the strategy of how do we give people the wrong impressions of who God is. If you get a hold of satanic verses uh, in, in that text, Anton LaVey uh, a big part of his teaching is to look at everything backwards, turn things over, turn them upside down, learn to look at them opposite. And it's all an attempt to twist people. And, and you say, wow, his influence must be really small because I've never even heard of him. But no, their influence has infiltrated much of society as they've been on mission to, to undermine God in big ways. And they do it through all the major entities that you can imagine. Uh, like Hollywood, like the news, so on and so forth. Schools, let's not talk about creation anymore. Let's begin to give people the wrong ideas of God. Let's undermine God. Let's destroy his power and effectiveness, even in the church, to debate his capacity of power. But Jesus said this to those who would listen to him. These words from John 8 again, verse 31. He said, and you need to hear this, all who will hear, he says to us, if you hold to my teaching you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And so what we have to recognize is that we have been lied to. We've been told that we're not good enough, we're not strong enough, that we're not smart enough. We've been told that we're not acceptable enough. We've been told, don't get serious about God now. You're way too young and there's so much life to be had. As if God somehow is trying to withhold blessings from you. And that's the exact lie that was used in the Garden of Eden uh, with Adam and Eve. So the intention of these lies is to keep us from knowing truth because as long as we don't know the truth, we can be held in bondage to those forces that operate in contradiction to God. So Mike in his book defines himself here, gives us his definition, he seals the book with his definition by asking the question, who is a God like you? And then he gives the truth. He pardons sins. He is compassionate. He is merciful. He's a gracious, gracious God. I don't know. Maybe the song applies here, but might as well try this. Truth. And uh, this song, you have to be careful because it sounds like flesh, but you got to hear what it's saying. I am somebody because God loves me and I'm accepted just the way that I am His love is higher It's deeper and wider Than you or I could Ever understand You want to try it with me? I am somebody Because God loves me And I'm accepted Just the way that I am his love is higher, it's deeper and wider than you or I could ever understand. Can I hear you by yourself? Let's do it. Here we go. All right, let's go together again. I am somebody because God loves me and I'm accepted just the way that I am. His love is higher, is deeper and wider than you or I could ever understand yeah i've got to get that into you <laughs> awesome yeah he paid the ultimate price for you and that gives you great value micah 3 1 looking at this the word of the lord that came to micah of morasheth so morasheth we get a little bit of the location here at this time it was a small little village southwest of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. So Micah's a prophet in the southern kingdom. Later on, it's going to be called Merisheth Goth because as the city of Goth expands and sprawls, uh, uh, Merisheth will become a suburb of this, of this city. So I want to articulate, Micah was a country boy, uh, contemporary to Isaiah, who was a city boy. Uh, Michael's, Micah's influence, we think, is quite small, while Isaiah was able to influence palaces 
Yet at the same time, and we're going to see this in our studies, when you hear me talk about the, the, the reformations of Israel that saved them from the Assyrians, Micah was the prophet that spoke to the king that enabled much of that reformation to take place. So a huge player, not minor for lack of significance, but minor prophet because of the size of the writing. So during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, that wicked king, and Hezekiah, the one who brings forth the, the Reformation here, gets credit for it. Kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. This gives us reference to the historical setting of what's happening here and the time and conditions of what's taking place. Israel is prospering right now. And because they're prospering, they're forgetting God. And this is a problem that we see throughout history. Verse 2. The prophet speaks, Hear, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. You might want to underline high places there. It's not talking about the Himalayas. It's not talking about the Andes or the Rockies. It's talking about something else that's going on there. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. Then this interesting question, what is Jacob's transgression? Pointing now to the capital city of the north. Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Pointing now to the capital of the southern kingdom. Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes. As the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. And folks, 20 years later, 20 years from the time of this writing, verse 6 was fulfilled in the northern kingdom. In fact, you can still go to this region today. And though Rome rebuilt this city, the, the northern city of Samaria, there's, there's still remnants of the original city there to be seen and all around it, beautiful vegetation, fruit trees, vineyards. The prophecy, are, are you hearing this now? The prophecy was fulfilled just as God has said, had said. And, and these opening verses give us a summary of what the first chapters of Micah what, what these chapters are all about. There's great moral failure, failure going on in this, this region, and God is sending the Assyrian armies as a judge against them. So someone hears this now, and they just say, well, Michael, you just spent a great deal of time telling us about a God who forgives, a God who uh, is not angry forever, a God who is compassionate, and now you're starting the teaching off and saying that the first three chapters of Micah are dealing with judgment. Are you contradicting yourself here? No, because God is way too kind to allow evil to continue forever. Evil is just that. It's evil. 
It hurts people. It destroys lives. And while the devil wants to convince us that these things are somehow satisfying or significant or provide security for us, it's a lie that only ends up destroying our lives. So because God is so kind and because God is so compassionate, he sends prophets like the prophet Micah into this area to begin calling them back to God. And this is why this great reformation takes place. In the northern kingdom, they continue to reject the prophets' voices, and therefore the Assyrians come in and attack. The southern kingdom, they call in the name of God, they call for a, a season of prayer and fasting, and they, by doing so, are kept protected from the attacks of the Assyrians. Do you see this, folks? Listen, there are those, uh, this weekend we were with people from all over the country for our, our district conference, and people are telling us, we're praying for Colorado. We're, we can't believe the way you've been hit. These, these wildfires, uh, the shooting yesterday. But you know, this May, Colorado declared the National Day of Prayer unconstitutional. Now, I don't want to be some kind of a naysayer or, or kind of, you know, try to freak you out with ideas. But folks, we see in Scripture a link between people calling on the name of God and blessing or people rejecting the name of God and experiencing difficulties. And I don't use this uh, to, to play on what happened this weekend. But let it be a call to us. We need God. And it was good to hear the mayor of, of Aurora say, uh, we've gotten way off with the separation of church and state. I, as a leader of the city, we need the church. Very, very important. Now go back to verse 1, and notice Micah. He's preaching there in the names, of the, the reigns of these three kings of the southern kingdom, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Now that doesn't mean he preached the entirety of the reigns of all three of these kings. It just gives us a time frame in which he's speaking. So it might have been a whole of one and a, and a part of another. But what this tells us is that he was preaching between 680 and 750 B.C. So this tells us that two minor prophets we've already studied, Hosea and Amos, are his contemporaries. They're preaching in the north. They're not having much root. Also, at the same time, Isaiah is preaching. So Micah and Isaiah are both preaching in the southern kingdom. They're preaching, in some cases, together, okay? And they're seeing fruit. They're seeing results. They see this reformation happen. Micah and Isaiah would have known each other. There's a sense where they probably fellowship together. There's indications of, of the writings that they shared ideas together. But what I want to be careful of is to think that because they have similar thoughts, or in some cases they're nearly verbatim in what they said, that somehow that's the only thing going on here, and then we miss the whole point of it. The truth of the matter is these men are speaking by the breath of the Holy Spirit, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and the message they're speaking is common because it's common to the God they serve. Okay, so I want you to see an illustration of this. I saw it up there just a moment ago. I'm sorry it, it turned out quite that way, but you can see a comparison of the verses from Isaiah. And if you want to flip there in your Bible, this is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. But don't lose Micah, because it's also Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Okay? Now, uh, <clears throat> both of them read exactly this way. 
And, and as I read these, keep in mind that I've given this the title, The Truth About the Coming Kingdom, because Micah is the prophet of the coming kingdom. Get, we're going to see some amazing prophecies of Jesus' first coming, and we're going to see some amazing prophecies of Jesus' second coming. This pertains to the second coming. Look at it. <clears throat> In the last days. This is both books, verbatim. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As chief among the mountains, it will be raised above the hills and people will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord in the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his path. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples. And here you see a distinction, the words the nations. He will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And Isaiah says, uh, for many people. And then this amazing statement of peace, when weapons are turned into useful farm implements. What a day that will be. Look at it. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Does that sound good to anyone? Huh? At all? No more fear of war. And yet we have uh, these leaders in our world who try to tell you they know the path to world peace. It's not going to come until Jesus reigns supreme. And these days are fulfilled. But you look at this and you can say, wow, it really does appear that, that Micah and Isaiah were operating in cahoots. That they were sharing ideas. And, and perhaps they were sitting down and sharing ideas. But the way this appears here, I want to give credit to where credit is due that this is the result and the operation of the Holy Spirit and God is glorified in this situation. That happens around here. I'm, I'm amazed. It's happened to me my entire ministry where I'll be teaching something, like maybe even here teaching something, and someone will say, I can't believe that you shared that today because I was listening to so-and-so and I heard the same thing. And it's not like we're operating out of, in cahoots or like we're uh, reading the same stuff to get the same ideas. I'm just working through the scriptures, and yet it's an affirmation. So by way of application, if you hear the same truth coming from multiple uh, sources of the Word of God, multiple voices, give glory and praise to God and recognize the Holy Spirit is still alive and well and speaking God's truth into anyone who will hear it. Amen? Absolutely. Now also back to verse 1, the cities of Samaria and Jerusalem. And uh, then in verse 5, we see why God is coming in judgment. It says, all this is because of Jacob's transgressions, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? What is Jacob's sin? <clears throat> and then he points to the capital city of the north, Samaria. And then what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem, the capital of the south? Now, you do understand that the names Jacob and Israel are synonymous terms. If you read over in the book of, of Genesis, God gives Jacob a new name. He, what's the name he gives him? Israel. Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12s become the nations of Israel. Okay, that, that's important to see the distinction here. So when he talks about Jacob, he's talking about the northern kingdom. So what's going on? Okay, when we think about Judah, the southern kingdom, we tend to think about 
David? What is it that God is pointing to these capital cities and he's saying that your sin is defined by these cities? What is it? Okay, but first notice this little country boy of a prophet is not just addressing the south, he's addressing the north and the south. And in this, the question is posed, what are the sins of the northern and southern kingdom and that were pointed to these capital cities? Is it not Samaria? Is it not Jerusalem? And friends, what God is saying right there is this. Your problem is in your political centers. Your problem is in your political centers. If you want to know what's wrong, look to your political centers. Now, before you just get all up in arms and you start finding fault with politicians, hear what this is saying the things that happen in our political centers are an expression of that which is going on in the hearts of the people. Something is going on in the hearts of the people that is manifest in what's happening and taking place in the political centers. And if you understand anything about lining yourself up with God in spiritual warfare, because we are in a battle between that which is right and that which is wrong, and we've heard that this morning, that we need to be praying for our capitals, for our presidents, for our kings, for our governors, for our decision makers, because what's happening to them is the reality of what's happening in people, but also because it's being expressed that way, we are vulnerable to what decisions they are making. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. He said, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And if you read that in context, it says, because God wants men everywhere to be saved, and that's talking about even our leaders. And the church gets all up in arms and starts faulting our leaders, faulting our leaders, pointing at them and calling them wicked as if we are the voice of judgment. When Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, instead of intercessors who are calling out to God on behalf of those who don't know him. So the application here is that we pray for leaders because we recognize that their decisions are manifestations of what's going on in the people. We pray for them because their decisions affect the church. We pray for them uh, because they, their decisions affect how the kingdom is moving forward. We pray for them but also notice in verse three high places i told you to underline that go to verse five the question is asked what are judah's high places this is generally talking about shrines worship centers to false deities that had been set up in the hills surrounding jerusalem but it has nothing to do with the elevation of where these places are being set up as it has to do with something else that's going on here. But friends, these false gods 
are most comparable to what we understand in our culture as pornography. These idols are uh, rooted in the reproductive capacities of a community, agrarian culture, that if, if somehow we worship sex, and I don't want to give the impression that I'm a prude and that sex is evil, sex is good, intended by God for pleasure, intended by God uh, for procreation so that we can bless children in church and so forth and so on. But there's a tendency because of the flesh to try to satisfy the flesh, and in that we start worshiping it as if that is the source of our abundance and blessing. And you can literally go to these places in the earth and buy replicas of these false deities today that are nothing more than, uh, than uh, pornographic images uh, as simple as they were back then. Today, it's, it's much more complicated. But more importantly than anything I have said is that these shrines and these high places represent strongholds that have been established against the kingdom of God. Okay, uh, this is uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes this. <clears throat> You all, all with me? I'm not just up here blabbing in the wind, am I? You tracking with this? This is the Word of God. Best I know it, best I understand it, best God gave it to me. I have nothing to sell, nothing to gain in this, except the hope that people will see God and be drawn to Him, see what's happening in our world and turn recognize I don't want to keep going that way with everybody else. I want to turn and I want to know God. I want to become an intercessor for those who don't know. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Now, you might want to circle the word heavenly realm because that's not talking about heaven. That's talking about a spiritual dimension that could be considered the heavenlies. Okay, we all know there's a very real, real earth. We all know that, that there's a very real heaven to the best of our understanding. But there's this other place, and this is the place where spiritual conflicts take place. This is the place where, where men's souls are on the line. Men's eternity that is what is at stake. This is the place where a vital life-giving relationship with God is at stake. And these high places that Micah is talking about are the exact same high places that we read about right here in Ephesians chapter 6. And in both of those situations, we find pictures of the Lord entering into the place of conflict to stamp it out and destroy it once and for all. We don't have to be afraid of these dark things that are happening around us. We don't have to be afraid of, these, of the spiritual dimension because what we know is that ultimately God will reign victorious. We know this. Ultimately, God wins. But more importantly for us right now is that God wants us to be involved in the spiritual battle so that we can literally see these strongholds being broken down in order that people might come to faith, people might come to understanding, and that people might have life as, as he intended. 
like Hezekiah's Reformation. And friends, there are strongholds that are set up right here in Estes Park. And there are strongholds that are set up in the state of Colorado. There are strongholds that have been set up in our nation and in our world. Real strongholds, and the, and, and the Lord is calling us to engage them so that we can see people set free. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So here I said, there's strongholds set up in our town. There's strongholds set up in our state, in our nation, and in our world. But hear me now. There are strongholds that are set up in our own lives. And there are areas that, that we believe we should be getting victory over, and we don't get victory over them because we're trying and we're fighting and we want to do it in the flesh. But the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. No way. Instead, they have divine power for tearing down strongholds. And God wants to break those strongholds in your life. He wants to break those strongholds in the life of that person that you don't understand and you'd like to see them change. And while you're trying to, trying to figure out how do you get them to change, the reality is they need you praying for them. They need you entering into the spiritual dimension in order that they might see a victory that comes from God, a breakthrough, so that they say, I don't know what happened, but God got a hold of my life. Just like the uh, guy I was talking to the other day, Kenny Anderson, Anderson Salvage. Uh, when his son had his first baby, he said, Dad, I'm glad you love your grandchild, but you won't ever, she will never drive in your car. Because he was an alcoholic. And that day, Kenny Anderson went home, fell on his knees, and cried out to God and was delivered from alcohol from that moment on. Breakthrough happens. All eyes on Jesus. It's about a deep dependence on Him. Father God, we are recognizing today that what we're talking about in our society may be laughed at and may be scoffed at, but today many of us are seeing that it's a very real battle that is going on that Micah addresses when he talks about these high places. And in the name of Jesus and by the power that you've given us, power to raise the dead, we together come against these strongholds and we break them by faith in Jesus' name. And Father, there are those individuals right here today that need a breakthrough, and by faith we ask you and we receive your blessing to break those chains and set the captive free, whatever it might be, whether, whether it be alcohol, whether it be drugs, whether it be anger, whether it be some diagnosis they've received as, as some kind of mental condition or even a physical condition that they've been told they'll have to live with and learn to manage. Lord, we believe that you are greater and you are stronger than any of these things, and we come to you in Jesus' name. No other name, Jesus' name, putting our faith in Jesus, and we ask you and thank you for breaking chains today in Jesus' name.
And Father, we pray for the church that rather than the church reminding the world of how evil the world is, that we will instead say, God loves you and died to make a way for you to come home. That that would be our message. And that it would be heard in the cities. And because it's being heard in the cities and in the hearts of people, that will, it will have effect on what's happening in our political centers so that we can be a people who are returning to God and experiencing reformation. Do your work, Lord. Do your work. I'm just going to let it be quiet for a few moments, and I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit work where he needs to. Bear with us. But you just get your eyes on Jesus and let him speak into your life right now.